Tomorrow morning, I leave for Louisville, Kentucky uh, for the annual pastor's conference of the churches in our network, and it's caused me to reflect back on last year's conference at the conclusion of which uh, we were encouraged to go home and uh, take an inventory of what our family thought of who we were and what we had been as a father, as a dad. We were supposed to approach the people of our family and say, tell me what are the characteristics that would most mark my life? And as I look peripherally over at my wife and daughter, they're both thinking, when did that happen? We missed that meeting. <laughs> um, I never had the conversation because, uh, to be honest, like you, uh, I don't want to hear bad news. Sometimes I just don't want to hear, okay, and they may have had good things to say, uh, but I have heard before that one of the top characteristics that wasn't on my list was uh, my uh, empathy. I, I would have lacked empathy. That's what I would have historically been told as a pastor of 20-some years, too, is that there's a, there's a part of me that is moving so fast most of the time by temperament that I'm not very good at slowing down and, and feeling the connection with people. And uh, we'll have to have a conversation as a family later about the details that they'd like to share with me or the additions they'd like to make to that particular list. Anyway, uh, I look forward to that trip. Uh, I've learned some things about empathy over the years, and uh, one of the things is that it's generally born out of experience. It's generally born out of pain and suffering. What enables us to experience and empathize with others is the pain we've ourselves experienced. In August of this year, uh, Senator John McCain of Arizona passed away. And while he's known in this generation as a legendary statesman or a high-ranking senator or a former presidential candidate, uh, to his generation, John McCain was a young Navy aviator who was shot down over Hanoi in 1967 and captured by the North Vietnamese. Uh, the reason this was known by a lot in that generation was this two years after this, when a bunch of POWs were released, um, Time Magazine reported that one of the prisoners was John McCain, the son of the American commander in the Pacific. So his father was a big deal and John McCain was a prisoner of war. By all reliable accounts, when he was shot down, uh, John McCain had several broken legs and spent ultimately five and a half years in a, in a prisoner of war camp. And the details of his stay are fairly grisly. Uh, meals were doled out in almost starvation portions. Um, the, the prisoners often were kept in iron manacles. Uh, they were, if sick, left to sit in their own filth. And for many, but especially the officers, the high-ranking officers like Mr. McCain, they were put in solitary confinement. John McCain spent five and a half years there as a prisoner and the majority of that in solitary confinement. In reports about that experience, in his expressions about that experience, Senator McCain said that the isolation was by far the worst part of 
the entire ordeal. And one of the ways that he and his fellow prisoners coped with that isolation was they developed a tapping system on the walls so they could communicate with each other by tapping. And at the very least, what that did was it let them know they weren't alone. And that was really encouraging, just to know that there was somebody else who had their experience, who knew they were there, that they weren't alone. Feeling alone in the midst of suffering is uh, possibly the worst experience I've ever had. Um, Ten years ago, I've shared at times about a near breakdown I had, and I can say for others, too, that believing you're alone in your pain and not having any sense of when that pain is going to end makes the suffering exponentially worse. And yet, something has come of my experience of coming close to an emotional breakdown. It has produced unexpectedly high levels of empathy for those who have gone through a similar suffering or are going through a deep suffering. My suffering produced empathy. Uh, We continue in our study in the Gospel of John, and this week we're going to read of Jesus' continued preparation for His suffering, His known mission that He was going to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And today, we're going to focus on some of Jesus' experience with His final moments with His disciples, in which He would drop substantial information that He was hoping would clue them in a little bit as to what was happening next. Giving them this information, it says in John 13, 21, that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Linguistically, whenever somebody would say truly, truly, what they would be was saying, this is a true truth. This is real. This is big. The repetition would emphasize that this wasn't a guesswork on Jesus' part. This was a certainty. Somebody was going to betray him, and Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This verse will drive our study today as we consider what it means for the Son of God to be deeply distressed. Uh, I hope that today we're going to be able to mine this text for gold. And if you know anything about mining or have watched Gold Rush enough on Discovery Channel, uh, you have to pick one area and you have to go deep in that one area. You can't skip three feet off the ground over the course of 50 acres. You've got to dig deep. And today, I hope by picking a single concept and drilling deeply into it, we would discover some specific descriptions of Jesus' experience and then use those as a means to discover and learn and comprehend more about our God. As always, our hope is to clearly see the attributes of God in Christ. And as a result, then we become more faithful followers of His, more faithful worshipers of His, and by His grace and by the presence of His Spirit in our life, great imitators of Jesus. We begin by asking When Jesus is troubled, what are we supposed to take away from that? What are we supposed to learn about Jesus from his being troubled? I would say first and foremost today, Jesus was troubled, and what we can know is 
he sympathizes with us. It wasn't as if he couldn't sympathize before. He's perfect and was perfect before he was created. But part of the beauty of the incarnation of Christ is now eternity steps into time and we get to see aspects of who God is. And in this passage, we see a beginning of Jesus being able to assure his disciples of his sympathy. In John 13, 18 and 19, Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you with regards to the betrayal. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I am fascinated by Jesus' care for his disciples during this time. Jesus is about to suffer the most painful death imaginable, crucifixion on a Roman cross. And then couple that with the humiliation that comes with the crowd mocking and taunting him. Still, in the, in the midst of knowing that this suffering was upon him, his thoughts turn towards his friend's welfare. And one reason Jesus is telling them about this, it says here in the text, is that they would know that when the betrayal take place, takes place and all of the subsequent ramifications of that betrayal, that they would be able to believe that Jesus was who he had told them he was. He told them so that when difficulty happens, they would have something to hang on to. They would know that Jesus by nature was God and had at least known these things ahead of time. Jesus wanted them to be assured that he was the Savior and that during the nightmare of watching him suffer and die for their sins, that he knew this was all coming. This is supposed to be encouraging to all of us to know that he has it all figured out. But perhaps what would be most encouraging to his disciples upon remembrance of what Jesus said them was that in the future, as we read in the book of Acts and the letters from these apostles, they were betrayed by friends and family too. And they would be able to look back and un know that Jesus understood what they were feeling. That if they're suffering... It isn't something Jesus not only didn't know about, it's not something that Jesus hadn't experienced. Jesus knew pain. It says he was troubled, deeply grieved. Elise Fitzpatrick is a terrific Christian author who I commend to you. She wrote this, quote, Jesus Christ understands our suffering. Everything you feel in the middle of hardship, disillusionment, Grief, abandonment, loss, Jesus Christ has faced. Not only that, but he enters into our suffering with us. Jesus isn't leaving you alone. He feels the, the, the same pain you feel. He enters into that with you. He obviously originally entered into human history by leaving his rightful place by his father and being incarnated into human flesh and experiencing the painful things that are associated with being in this world, willingly stepping into our shoes. Matthew 4.1 actually says that temptation was a part of God's plan for Jesus' life. 
that Jesus was literally led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Led by the Spirit, which is part of the reason why when he teaches us to pray, as we studied in the New City Catechism, week 41, the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation. Jesus says, you don't even want to get led into temptation. I've done that. It's no fun. He's given us the heads up. Why was temptation part of Jesus' plan? Well, there's some Christological reasons. There's some reasons for Jesus being the perfect son of God and his need to obey all of the commands in our place so that later he could credit that righteousness to us. That's really a subject for another day and a great subject it will be. One of the reasons that Jesus would go through temptation was to once again be able to vividly portray for us in the flesh an aspect of our holy God that maybe we weren't getting based on just the Old Testament information we had. I mean, it does say in the Old Testament that we are his sheep, that he knows we are just, but there's something in all of us that thinks, is he really sympathetic with us? The writer of Hebrews has this to say in Hebrews 4, 13 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you feel alone? The scriptures assure us that you aren't if the presence of the Holy Spirit lives in you. Do you feel that God is frustrated with you because of the habitual sin in your life or the struggle you have to overcome a compulsion or addiction? Do you imagine that before you can talk with him honestly about it and pour out your heart about what you're really feeling and thinking that you've got to be in this place of willing yourself to want to change? Do you feel like you have to have the desire to change before you can even talk to God about it? So many Christians have this perspective. But here's the wonderful reality of the gospel of God's grace. Jesus empathizes with your weaknesses, your sufferings, and he knows what it's like to be tempted. It's just that he's never sinned. He never succumbed. But when you and I come to him in our moments of weakness, in our moments of failure, in our moments of suffering, in our moments of doubt, in our moments of confusion, and we say to him, I'm just confused, I'm lost, I'm stuck, I'm trapped, his response is not frustration with you. Don't you know how holy I am? This is not the response of the God of Scripture, and we know this more clearly than ever before because Jesus has come into flesh. He is the exact representation of the Father. And it says here in Hebrews 4 that he empathizes, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. See, it's in those moments where you feel like you just can't take it anymore, where you've endured a painful relationship for so long, 
and you think God's displeased with me for even feeling this way in the first place, it's in those moments when you've sinned in such a, it's such a habitual and just compulsive way again where you go, I don't want to go back to God and I'm not really serious about changing just yet where he says, come to me. See, that's the time your, your need for mercy and grace is at its greatest. And if you're a Christian, the gospel says that you have been made holy by the righteousness of Christ and by his forgiveness. And it's in those times of great desperation where you can enter into his presence and humbly say, I don't have what it takes to do this. I can't be this. I don't know what to do. I'm trapped in something that I can't get out of. And his response to that is, I understand. I understand what you're going through. I understand how you feel. And I'm here to build relationships and strength and trust with you so that you would walk in the ways that I've prescribed for you and experience the health and joy of what it means to be his child. Jesus' experience of temptation, Jesus' experience of heartbreak, Jesus' experiences of betrayal yielded for us a vivid picture of a character trait of the eternal God that we may never have really comprehended without his physical presence on earth, and that is his sympathy. Jesus was troubled. And because we see him genuinely troubled by what's going on in his life and in his relationships, we have great comfort to know that he really does sympathize with what it means to walk in this world. Second question I had when I looked at Jesus being troubled was what particularly was he troubled about? And what you can see from today's text is that Jesus was grieved by their sin and he continues to be grieved by ours. In verses 23 through 26 of our passage, it says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. I have to pause here to let you know that this is the Apostle John's way of speaking of himself. He's like one of those celebrities who speaks of himself in the third person. Hey, the person who Jesus loves was there. You know, I mean, this is John's thing. All right, it's, it is a way of potentially John being humble and recognizing that he doesn't want to make himself look that much better than everybody else. But what's going on here is they're at the table, and Simon Peter, it says, motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. You've got to get this picture to really appreciate it. They're sitting around the dinner table. Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me. Clearly, John was sitting next to Jesus because Peter wasn't, and he basically gets John's attention and says, hey, hey, ask Jesus who it is. And John says, hey, Jesus, who is it? And I'm amazed that Jesus answered him. It's like, yeah, okay, it's the guy I dipped the bread into a thing with, you know. And and they still didn't understand it when they saw it which I didn't think you could be as dense as I am, but apparently that is possible in the presence of Jesus. He can tell you the action plan, and you're still going to miss it when it happens. 
The dipping of the piece of bread was significant. D.A. Carson says that it was best understood as Jesus' final offer of peace to Judas, a gesture of honor, a final appeal to his betrayer. In the context, Jesus feeding Judas by hand should tell us a lot about the intimacy level of the moment and a lot about their relationship. For I ask you, who gets to feed you by hand? How many people in your life can touch your food, let alone pick it up and put it in your mouth? I got like one. That's Carolyn. My kids when they were little. But it would be really weird now for them to do this. So, I mean, I think all of us recognize that this, this means there is an intimacy level going on here that's pretty important. Judas was a close friend. He was a group insider. He was someone that of all of the throngs that Jesus could have chosen from to be his 12 disciples, Judas was chosen. There was a moment in Judas's life where Jesus said, come follow me. And Judas did. Judas was thought of as not a stranger, but a trusted brother. Jesus had given him the responsibility to watch the money. Now, he didn't do well at that, obviously. But this is the kind of trust that Jesus had placed in Judas. Some commenters believe that John's mentioning of his being the one whom Jesus loved just reinforces the intimacy level that Jesus had with all of his disciples. They all had a great sense of connection. Jesus was deeply connected to his disciples, and therefore felt the pain of their sin, the grief of their sin against him equally deeply. Then to add insult to grievous injury, Jesus later reveals that one of arguably his best friends, Peter, would betray him too. In verses 37 and 38, which we didn't read as a congregation today, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, and I have to think this was his tone, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, uh uh-oh, he got a truly, truly. I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Judas betrays him, and now he finds out, and he knows that he's going to have his, one of his best buddies is going to deny him too. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.30 speaks of the ongoing reality that God feels this same level of grief when we disobey Him. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me unpack this for a second. This expression of being sealed echoes what Paul said in the first chapter of Ephesians when he said, When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. When you believed, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you now and will never leave you. And the word seal is emblematic or really picturing, depicting this Roman seal that would go on correspondence when the emperor wanted to send a telegram, a message, 
they would roll it up, they would put wax on it, they would use the king's signet ring, and then the courier would take it. And if that seal was broken when it arrived at its location or when it was returned from another king, it was death to the person who was bringing this message. The seal was not a small thing. It was a done deal when it was sealed. And the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit lives in the real believer, this presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity lives in you. And if he does, that permanently seals you. This means the Spirit never leaves the believer. So he is present when we sin against him. Even if we try with all of our might to push him out of our heads so we don't have to think about him. We try to distract ourselves and not actually meditate on the idea that what we're doing is disappointing to God. He's grieved by our disregard for his honor, for the holiness of his presence in us. The Greek word used for grieve here in Ephesians 4 is every bit as strong as the word used to describe Jesus' soul trouble in John 13 as it indicates sorrow and distress. When you and I sin against God, He is distressed as Jesus was distressed. Brian Chappell writes, quote, The same Spirit who convicts my heart of sin generates in me love for God, gives me new birth, provides my apprehension of the beauty of grace in the world, and seals my redemption until the coming of the Lord. This same Spirit who loves me so intimately and perfectly, I can cause to grieve. In fact, so grieved were the Father, Son, and Spirit about our sin that they not only couldn't be in the presence of sin, but they planned to have Jesus be the atoning sacrifice for those sins. If sin wasn't offensive to them, then why would they have had to have Jesus crucified? Perhaps you don't feel so sinful. Perhaps you're one of a good number of people who feel as if they're basically good, but every now and again make a mistake. You wonder, what is all this talk about our behavior causing God grief? This characterization of oneself would be a far cry from the biblical description given to us by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 6, which says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. You may say, I've never done fill in the blank. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never cursed. Maybe you're one of those people. Holiness, though, is not just avoiding bad things. True holiness is doing all the right things, too. There are some of us who are in the type, the personality type, the character trait type, that we are more obviously active in our disobedience to God. It's fairly easy to track these folks. They do wrong things. But then there's another group of people who aren't that easy to track. On the surface, they seem to be very compliant. But what that group has to realize is that they likely aren't doing a lot of things. And then there are some of us who are in both categories. 
if you're somebody who can't get your arms around why your behavior grieves the Lord because you can't help but think in terms of what bad things you haven't done, let me ask you some questions. Have you ever given money to someone simply because you sensed they had a need? And I don't mean the change in your pocket to the homeless person you ran into by the interstate ramp. I mean, have you ever really dipped into it, that savings, till it hurt to help somebody in need? And not because they asked you, but because you saw it. Do you pursue reconciliation with people who you've harmed or who have harmed you? See, the pursuit of reconciliation is a command of the Scriptures, and you can be passive in that and be as disobedient as the most rebellious fart on the planet. Is there any evidence in your life that you help the poor, you help the widows, you help the orphans? All biblical commands to do. Do you have any friends or acquaintances who aren't Christians so that you could be in their life to shine the gospel of grace? Another command to do. When's the last time you pursued a relationship with a person who isn't a member of your immediate family or immediate workforce? When's the time you went out of your comfort zone to take care of somebody else? Do you proactively sacrifice your time, talent, and treasures so others can see Jesus in you? I want you to understand that your passivity may be equally and is equally as offensive to God as somebody's activity. Let me give an example of that in my own life as somebody who's both passive and actively sinful. I would say that recently I had an experience of being passive and it hurt somebody. I went to lunch with a friend and uh, we sat down to eat lunch and and I thought it was going to be our usual banter. You know, hey, how's it going? Tell me about your life. Hey, I'll tell you about my life. And it was going to be this fun sort of jocular time. And he interrupted and said, hey, I want to ask you something real quick before we get started. Um, Do you have um, a problem in our friendship at all? And if you did, would you You'd be able to tell me, right? And I said, sure. And then he reminded me of something that I'd promised him that I would do something with him, and at the last minute, I called the cancel. And he wanted me to know that he had really looked forward to hanging out and that I seemingly haphazardly just canceled. And that hurt him. That made him feel that our relationship wasn't important to him. And so I assured him, I said, I, let me explain myself. I, I, was, I was just being selfish. I, I wasn't thinking about you. I apologize. I, I didn't mean to imply by that that I didn't care about you, but I understand how that made you feel, and I'm sorry. And I asked him to forgive me, and he did. And then we went on to goof around for a couple hours at lunch. As I thought about the encounter, I arrived at a couple of realizations that I believe are not only true for me, but true generally for all of us. And one is that his willingness to communicate how I had hurt him told me that my friendship was important to him. It told me that he was valuable. I was valuable to him. It made me feel loved. I mean, this is a great guy, and and that I had the capacity to... To, to passively even hurt his feelings. It, it made me think, wow, you, you, you actually value this relationship. It made me feel important. It made me feel he needed me. 
I was honored that he would have actually taken the time to confront the situation. The other thing is upon reflection, I realize that over the course of my life, I don't often change my behavior until I know it is negatively affecting other people. Put it this way, sometimes until I see Carolyn tear up, I don't know what a jerk I'm really being or how hurtful it is. And maybe those of you who are married understand that. Sometimes you, you just think, oh, whatever, and then you realize, oh, wow, this is, a, this is another level. I've had that with my kids before. I see it on their faces that, Dad, you're, you're way off here. Something's, you know, you're really hurting me, and I can tell by their countenance that I've done something that has caused them grief. And it's when I sense that that I actually begin to think, this is something I need to change. I love them too much to continue to grieve them in this way. You see, it's only in the context of friendship and love that we're ever really motivated to alter our behavior. And knowing that the Holy Spirit who lives within you can be grieved is the first in a couple of steps that will help you actually see transformation. First, you'll know that by virtue of the fact that you can grieve him, that he loves you. Can you believe that? The creator of the universe can be grieved by his children. You have that capacity. Do you know what that means? It means he actually cares. He actually loves you. You can grieve him as Peter and Judas grieved Jesus. You, your behavior can break the heart of God can make you sad, but it should simultaneously make you think, how is it that somebody that beautiful and wonderful could love me? It's also the only way you'll ever feel deep regret that would produce in you the desire to love and obey Him. Coming to terms with how your behavior affects God, grieves the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Really feeling that is the only thing that will ever really make you think, okay, he loves me, and I've got I've to change this. This is something that has to, has to be adapted. Holy Spirit, I'm coming into your presence in this time of mercy, this time I need great grace. I'm asking you to help me. I know I've hurt you. And as strange as this may seem, I'm going to conclude our time in the Word today by praying for all of us that we would feel the weight of how our sinful behavior, either active or passive, grieves the Father. And I know that might sound really strange, like, I'm so sad I came to church today. Uh -huh. But hear me. I want you to recognize if you can really feel that, do you understand what that means? God loves you. Think about the people in your life who you don't care two cents about. Can they hurt your feelings? And the ones who are mean to you, if they're not close to you or you don't care about them, you know what you can do? Shh. You just shuffle them off. You just turn them off. You, you don't need them anymore. This is not what the Spirit of God is saying to His children. He's saying... I'm grieved. Feel that. I'm not going anywhere. You can't me off. 
I, I need you to change. I love you. You're killing me here. We need to feel that. Or we'll never really understand how valuable we are to the Father. I need His grace to comprehend that. But it scares me. It scares me because I don't want to feel bad. But if I really want to know the Lord loves me, I'm going to have to at least trust Him that I can be touched by that in a meaningful way. And that's the way He wants to bring about change in our lives. So join me as I pray for us this morning.